Hello again, and welcome to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Peasants' Revolt, Freedom and Risk. The date, January 2022, and my name is Bell Avis. Quote, But when no risk is taken, there is no freedom. It is thus that, in an industrial society, the plethora of laws made for our personal safety convert the land into a nursery, and policemen hired to protect us become self-serving busybodies. Unquote. Alan Watts, British philosopher. The Peasants' Revolt of 1381 was the most infamous popular uprising of the Middle Ages, and it was caused by simmering discontent in England that went as far back as the middle of Edward III of England's reign as king. Edward reigned from 1327 to 1377, and the arrival of the Black Death Plague in 1348. However, Edward's direct successor, Richard II of England, dealt with the chaos when the widespread discontent boiled over into all-out rebellion. The principal causes of the peasants' revolt were a new poll tax imposed on all peasants, irrespective of wealth, and it was the third such tax since 1377. Additionally, the crown set a limit by law on wages after labor costs had risen dramatically following the Black Death Plague. Further, unscrupulous landlords were trying to turn free laborers back into serfs, or aka villains, to save money on those wages. This created an overall feeling of exploitation by local authorities during economic decline. The poll tax of three groats, or equivalent to a couple of days of labor, was applied to anyone aged over 15, and only beggars were exempt. And, unlike other taxes, it took no consideration of a person's ability to actually pay the tax. The third poll tax was three times higher than the two previous ones to add more woe. And the peasantry had been well used to taxes. Edward III had imposed 27 of them during his reign, mainly to pay for his hugely expensive military campaigns against the French during the 100 Years War that lasted from 1337 all the way to 1453. And why was Edward waging war on the French? because of a personal claim to French territories and even the French crown itself. Those who follow the present-day Windsor family, or binge-watch Netflix The Crown, or stay up through the night to watch the latest fairy tale wedding, keep in mind that this was the true nature of monarchy for millennia, the people of a nation sacrificing for the personal needs of a single or small group of individuals. Richard II similarly needed cash to carry on the war with France, whose pirate ships were rampant in the English Channel, but now people had finally had enough. Now, there were other problems, too. In our COVID age, our society features a small but highly vocal group who go around terrified of their fellow human beings. More masks. And in fact, even after COVID is done, let's keep the masks. And though COVID deaths can both be both tragic and in some cases preventable with the vaccine regimen, they pale in comparison to the Black Death of 1346-48. to 48. Of a nation of 330 million, we are annually averaging 400,000 stated, now not all of those directly related to COVID, deaths 
400000 per year. Now, keep in mind something which I've talked about in previous podcasts. Prior to the COVID pandemic, in 2019, 2.7 million out of the 330 million people in America died. Most of those simply due to old age. As I've also said on many other podcasts, we are not immortal. If you're going to have a nation of hundreds of millions of people, you are also going to have millions of deaths as those people get to old age. Now, a lot of those 2.7 million are preventable, and they should be. But, so think about that, that 400,000 of stated COVID deaths, not all of them really were, but 400,000 stated COVID deaths out of a base of original 2.7 million. Now, that total, that 400,000 is less than one-eighth of 1% of our population. Let me reemphasize that. COVID deaths of 400,000 annually are one-eighth of 1% of our population. And based on that, we have reordered and basically overturned our economic progress and created a new level of divisiveness in our country. Now let's contrast that with the Black Death. The Black Death or in Europe, the bubonic plague in the mid-14th century claimed between 25 to 33% of all souls. Remember, COVID is one-eighth of 1%. In Europe, during the Black Death, 25 to 33% of everyone. And additionally, 74% of COVID deaths occur among those 65 or older. In 1935, the average lifespan was 67 for males, the Black Death was not quite so precise. It killed everyone, from a five-year-old child, where COVID is almost negligible, to a hearty 20-year-old, well, at least at that time, and to an elderly 50-year-old, because back in those days in the medieval times, 50 was old. It did not care. The Black Death was completely and utterly indiscriminate. The Black Death also reoriented European society deleterious to the spendthrift Plantagenets, the ruling dynasty of England in those days. The labor cost had risen dramatically following a shortage of labor after the Black Death struck in 1348. It meant that many serfs could now charge for their labor. They were no longer bound to the land because labor was so scarce and labor so necessary that the serfs finally had a degree of autonomy, something not enjoyed for most of medieval times. Edward III then imposed laws restricting how much a laborer could earn each day and strict punishments for those who did not comply. Macroeconomic forces changed the whole of England and the Plantagenet dynasty to try, decided to try to circumvent these macroeconomic trends with laws. Many landlords attempted to get around the problem by making their labors, well, remake them into serfs again, thus saving their wages. And the Black Death, as noted, had killed between 30 to 50% of populations in certain areas in Britain, even higher than the overall. And that meant that some peasants had been able to buy their small piece of land to farm as land prices plummeted, and there were simply not enough people to work it. These landed peasants were called yeomen. And in addition, the drastic fall in population had hit small businesses and artisans as their customers evaporated. These developments may explain why it was in the better off areas of the kingdom where the revolt actually broke out, rich soil areas such as East Anglia and Kent, and why it was a phenomenon 
not limited to the countryside. The uprising began in May and June of 1381 in England's southeast, where royal tax inspectors were investigating why tax returns had been surprisingly low. These inspectors suddenly met with opposition to their demands for payments of the new poll tax, which Parliament had passed in November of 1380. Officials and sheriffs were kidnapped and murdered. Bands of rebels toured the countryside on horseback, torching manors and destroying their records. Why would they destroy their records? because those were clear indicators of the peasants' desires to overturn something called manorialism. In other words, you were tied to a specific manor. But how would we know that a specific individual was tied to a specific manor if there were no records of that? The public records at Maidstone, Rochester, and Canterbury all went up in flames. The ringleaders seemed to be better off small farmers and included parish priests and village constables in their numbers. This was not a revolt of the absolute poor, but it added in commoners who had the most to lose. Note the beggars were exempt from the poll tax, but if I finally own my own farm, after centuries of toiling for some noble, now I can grow my own crops, and now here comes this poll tax, which is three times more than anything I've ever paid before. Well, I've just about had it. The crown, though, in response to the revolt, sent men-at-arms to deal with the problem areas, but these were simply too few in number, and many were killed. And one of the key factors of the Peasants' Revolt that I'll talk about in a little bit is, well, where's the army? There's always some royal army or one that could be assembled. The royal army was fighting the Scots in Scotland. Two leaders, in particular, came to the fore. Watt Tyler of Maidstone, perhaps a former soldier, but any specific details are lacking. And the demagogue priest John Ball, who radically sought more equality in society. Ball had already seen the inside of a prison a few times for his extreme preaching. And the medieval chronicler Jean Frissot, who lived from 1337 to 1405, records that Ball noted with frustration that, quote, The lords are clad in velvet and camlet, lined with squirrel and ermine. Will we go dressed in coarse cloth? They have the wines, the spices, and the good bread. We have the rye, the husks, and the straw, and we drink water. They have shelter and ease in their fine manners, and we have hardship and toil, the wind and the rain in the fields. And from us must come, from our labor, those very things which keep them in luxury. Unquote. Although only 14 years of age, King Richard II emerged from the safety of the Tower of London and bravely promised to meet the protest leaders at Mile End, a field on the outskirts of London. There, Richard listened to their demands and blithely pledged to meet all of them, issue charters accordingly, and even permitted Tyler to extract justice on any person he thought deserved punishment. Tyler then promptly ordered the storming of the Tower of London and had the hated Chancellor, Archbishop Simon of Sudbury, decapitated on Tower Hill. Another day of looting, murder, and mayhem followed in the capital. And meanwhile, news reached the king that rioting had spread as far north as York, and there was, or would be, troubles in the counties of Cambridgeshire, Herefordshire, Suffolk, and Norfolk. Richard then employed the much-used tactic of making a load of extravagant promises of which he had no intention of keeping, such as giving one everyone involved royal pardons. 
These promises were enough to stave off more rioting, and the mob disbanded. They were escorted out of London by the city's militia. Richard, though, whatever he had told those peasants at Miles End, whatever promises he had made, Richard decided, at the end, to go back on them almost immediately. After the mob had dispersed, Richard had his men captured and hang 150, so many that new gibbets had to be built for the purpose. Among the dead was Watt Tyler, whose head was displayed on London Bridge. In other words, Richard, utterly ruthless, even at the age of 14, went back on all of his promises, found the ringleaders, especially when his army came back from Scotland, and had them all hanged. Now, why did the peasants, downtrodden enough to revolt, knowing the consequences, in some way they were lucky because the king's main army, as I noted, was in Scotland at the time, and then they submitted to the king. The reason is freedom is hard. One of the few things that these peasants at the time had in mind was to overthrow the regime itself and set up some kind of self-governing democracy, some kind of a republic. Either they couldn't conceive of that, or they didn't have the intellectual knowledge. In my previous podcast, Four Revolutions, I talked about the founders of the American Republic. All of them had read some form of Greek or Roman histories, and at least had a working concept of what that was like. But in the 1380s, there was no Enlightenment, no John Locke, no Montesquieu, no Hobbes, no concept of how to form this government. So what they did is, is they did what they always did. They believed in the king. This, a 14-year-old boy. As I said, freedom is hard. The fun of a republic and of individual liberty, inherent in ours, is getting to make your own decisions. Or, after some time, two, four, and six years in most of our cases, removing a feckless politician from office. We not only get to make a lot of decisions within our own lives, but we get to decide who leads us. And if we don't like who leads us, we have the opportunity in a relatively short period of time of removing that individual from leadership positions. New Yorkers are not, fortunately for them, God help us, are not stuck with Bill de Blasio. Though I'm always going to ponder why he was elected in the first place. I mean, seriously, what New Yorkers, what were you thinking with him in the first place? But decisions also come with risks and responsibilities that people sometimes shirk. The peasants in 1381 were by no means prepared or even desirous of building their own government, of taking that kind of responsibility upon their own shoulders. No, they went to what they always understood, royalty, and believed in that royalty, and in the case of Watt Tyler, paid for that belief system with his life. For the peasants of Richard II's day, the idea that one was not necessarily born into a life of servitude to another was difficult to quash. However, people were well aware that the royals, large landowners, lawyers, and officials were conspiring in a system that kept the poor in their place, while they, the leaders, benefited. There was another anecdote that I wanted to share from Boris Yeltsin's Russia some 25 years ago. A university professor was visiting a city about 60 miles east of Moscow. Some of the people that this president was meeting were decrying the high cost of beef at, the, at that, the one, local butcher shop. 
At one point, the shop was the state-owned distributor of meat within the, the old Soviet Union, and so had somehow kept that role going into the Russian Republic. Though that blighted experiment in maximum redistributive government was gone, its legacy in the butcher shop persisted. The university president from the United States suggested that some entrepreneurial-minded Russians set up their own new shops and sell their meats for less money, thus driving competition into the market, into the system, and creating a world of fair-priced meats. The town members, to whom it was addressed, blinked back at that university professor. In their mind, whether state-owned or not, that was the butcher shop. They were not ready to suggest that someone take on the risk, someone take on the, that role of starting a brand new butcher shop. For reasons too many to count, but include the conversion of the state to tyranny, I am opposed to Marxism. But I see the appeal when fanatically minded people extol their followers, their downtrodden people with Marxist works such as, quote, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite, unquote. My problem is not that some chains need to be broken, but rather that in every instance of where Marxism or communism has been implemented, from Russia to China to Vietnam to Cuba to Angola to Cambodia, the chains imposed by the new regimes are heavier and more confining than whatever came before. That is for those who lived through the times, and tens of millions within these communist regimes did not. In my previous podcast, Four Revolutions, I noted the difference between the American Revolution to so many others. One of the critical ingredients, and a distinctive one, is individual liberty. But think what that entails. Historically, the only food to eat was available from the fields under one's own eye. Marriages could be arranged. Jobs were preset by whatever your parents did. Healthcare was non-existent. Today, the average American faces a hundred choices every day. From the mundane, well, what are we going to have for breakfast? Or which show to stream on which platform? To the life-altering, such as whom to marry, which job to take, whom to vote for, and which healthcare plan to enroll. There is a certain appeal to have Obamacare, some new version of government healthcare, make this decision for them. The great George Will adds, quote, The temptress of socialism is constantly luring us with the offer, Give up a little of your freedom, and I will give you a little more security, unquote. As the experience of this century has demonstrated, the bargain is tempting, but never pays off. We end up losing both our freedom and our security. Before one believes this is a left-only issue, consider the Patriot Act. Benjamin Franklin once said, quote, Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety, unquote. That quote often comes up in the context of new technology and concerns about government surveillance. In a rush for more nationalist brand of conservatism, there is a movement of the right to advocate policies that skirt close to less liberty and more safety type of arguments. Yet, though this is a tendency on the right, especially in various forms of Trumpism, it is still the purview of the left. 
Pro-government beliefs by their nature drive more significant control over the sacrifice of freedoms. Every terminology of entitlements, such as Social Security and Medicare, is a social safety net. Yet when a Social Security tax is automatically deducted from payroll, that is money that the individual cannot command. Perhaps the taxpayer will waste the money on some Bitcoin scheme. Oh, we can't have that. But the risk is inherent in their choice. The risk of Social Security going insolvent, which the progressive Biden administration has suggested within the next 10 years, is no risk because there is no choice. We are coerced into paying the Social Security tax regardless of whatever happens to the system. Again, we have no safety and we have no freedom. When Elizabeth Warren famously presented her innumerable plans in the presidential election of 2020, there was little concept of choice. The choice was hers. It was up to Americans to decide whether her choices were better for their lives than their own. It often gives me faith in the American people that a Democratic Party electorate soundly rejected Warren and all of her plans. In Free to Choose, a book written some 40 years ago, Milton and Rose Friedman explain how our freedom has been eroded and our affluence undermined through the explosion of laws, regulations, agencies, and spending in Washington. But keep in mind, this, this uh, explanation, this concern on the part of the Freedmans occurred before George W. Bush's, a Republican, drug benefit of 2004, before Obamacare in 2010, before higher tariffs imposed by Donald Trump, and before the recently passed infrastructure bill. Quote, a society that puts equality in the sense of equality of outcome ahead of freedom will end up with neither equality nor freedom. The use of force to achieve equality will destroy freedom and the force introduced for good purposes will end up in the hands of people who use it to promote their interests. On the other hand, a society that puts freedom first will, as a happy byproduct, end up with both greater freedom and greater equality. Though a byproduct of freedom, greater equality is not an accident. A free society releases the energies and abilities of people to pursue their objectives, and it prevents some people from arbitrarily suppressing others. It does not prevent some people from achieving positions of privilege, but so long as freedom is maintained, it prevents those positions of privilege from becoming institutionalized. They are subject to continued attack by other able, ambitious people. Freedom means diversity, but it also means mobility. It preserves the opportunity for today's disadvantaged to become tomorrow's privileged, and in the process, enables almost everyone from top to bottom to enjoy a fuller and richer life, unquote. Again, keep in mind, Milton and Rose Friedman wrote that book over 40 years ago, an entire generation. But doesn't it feel as if they are talking about our politics today in 2022? The yearnings of the peasantry of England for greater freedom over their lives and for greater justice from their government were understandable. Liberty and freedom are not cultural and societal, but as John Locke noted, natural inclinations. 
What released these aspirations was the opportunity wrought by the Black Death. In terms of supply and demand, the plague horrifically created an imbalance of a small collection of labor against the increasing demand by a voracious and often tyrannical regime. Yet, as the peasants placed their trust in a 14-year-old who happened to have the governmental power due to an accident of birth, they also showed a human trait, and that is, of running to safety and avoiding risk. A prudent person seeks substantial shelter and safety without question when a storm breaks. That makes sense. The risk of not doing so could be harm or even death. An imprudent person, though, and this is very important, an imprudent person, though, seeks safety without question from government officials. I am not suggesting that those who resist governmental overreach will share the same fate as Watt Tyler, but when Richard II exacted his vengeance against the temerity of his peasantry, he did, in his heart, did he think he was doing what was best for his realm? Did Richard think in not only suppressing but killing those 150 people that this it was what was best for society? That what was best for society was for those peasants to get back to their manners and not question his absolute right of authority. But in reality, we know he was really doing what was best for himself. Thank you for listening to another conservative historian podcast. We have a hundred others. Please take a listen, take a look. This is Bell Avis. Thanks for listening.